Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I'm the driving anchor and the transportation reporter, Jason Luber for Denver 7 News, and I am still fighting this cold. (laughs) I know it's on the way out. It's just been a struggle to get rid of the last of this thing. Uh, If you would like to be a part of the show, you can contact me on any of the contact links in the description of this fine program. And on the show today, I'm going to be speaking with J.R. Ridley. Jay, uh, John is the digital PR director for the Motor One research team. And we're going to be talking about an article that they published on the Motor One website that was written by Brogan Woodburn. And it's titled, The Surprising Impacts of Ride Sharing, Environment, Congestion, and Beyond. Now, they find that ride sharing, the vehicles, contribute to pollution and congestion opposite of the thinking that rideshare lessens congestion and pollution. And I wanted to speak with Brogan, but we will instead hear from JR in just a bit about this story. Uh, but first, you, you know that I've talked a lot about how cities will eventually restrict the flow of traffic and parking to eventually eliminate vehicles in downtown congested areas. Well, I received an email from ID Tech X. It's a group I've had here on the show before. They do a lot of research about vehicles and uh, congestion and and uh, things related to uh, driving around pollution, that sort of thing. And I received this email, and here, here was the headline. Cars need to be designed for cities, not the other way around. And, and it piqued my interest, so here is what ID Tech X had to say. There's a need to scrap the highway-centric model of urban development and prioritize the ease and convenience of local trips. Most car trips are short trips carrying just one person. Most of the energy is wasted on carrying the vehicle's own weight. Oversized vehicles are the root cause of urban congestion, pollution, waste of energy, material, and public space. Uh, okay, that's not exactly true, but this is their opinion. They should have said it was their opinion and not fact, and it's their narrative. So we will continue. As cities everywhere move towards a high-density, low-speed, low-impact model, it calls for a new type of personal vehicle to be created for people to get around conveniently. Microcars are one solution. Again, the size of your vehicle is not the main source of congestion here in cities, but it does seem logical that smaller cars are obviously an easier way for single drivers to get around, especially in very densely packed urban areas or very small uh, uh, cities, like uh, just a core, city core, right? Just think of them as uh, a golf cart on steroids, just a little bit bigger than a golf cart, not very much weight, not very much size, uh, not very much uh, speed to them. So they're, a li- so they're micro cars, which are smaller than regular cars, and really designed just to get you around a... Uh, just think of the villages down in... Uh, uh, Florida, where they drive in golf carts everywhere. So you have these smaller cars get you around. But but most families that live outside of a city core uh, in the suburbs or or in the urban area, they 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 are more than one person and they need more room uh, in in a vehicle. And yes, they they aren't using all that room all the time, but they do use that space. I have a, a regular sedan, and then uh, we also have a larger family car, which is a SUV type car. And and that's what we use all the time as a family. And we need that space. If you take a hundred vehicles and let's say out of those hundred, you have 10 large trucks, uh, 10%. So let's say 10% are large trucks and and the regular, uh, all the rest are regular vehicles. How much more space is taken up? So I, I actually looked at the length difference between a Dodge Ram pickup truck and a Toyota Corolla. The Ram is four feet longer, right? 
So so let's go back to the 100 vehicles and the 10% issue. If there are 10 trucks at four feet longer, uh, you're looking at about 40 feet in extra, you know, used space uh, with those 100 vehicles. Th- th- that's not the root cause of all congestion, 40 feet. And yes, you multiply it by many, but we're not talking about uh, highways here. We're talking about urban downtown areas. And, and, and yes, a big truck is a little larger than a smaller Toyota Corolla. But, uh, I mean, it's not the root cause of all congestion issues that we see. It's just too many people and not enough space, I suppose, uh, or people wanting to get onto public transportation, which, which is, is if you had public transportation that was nicer than your personal vehicle and more convenient than a personal vehicle and uh, more luxurious than a personal vehicle, people would use it more and, and, and less expensive than a personal vehicle, then people would use it more. But until it is, they're not going to do it. Anyway, back to the news release from ID Tech X. Microcars are the smallest size of four-wheeled electric vehicles. When unoccupied, these vehicles have an average weight of between 200 and 1,000 pounds. Again, that's pretty small. That's that's like, again, golf cart size. Depending on the vehicle type and lo- local regulations, their maximum speed varies from 15 to 55 miles an hour. Again, not designed to go very fast on interstates, on major highways, uh, maybe some major roadways, but they are not going to be super powerful. They're going to drive slower, and and they're just going to not take up much space. Okay, from a technical standpoint, these cars are easy to make, which explains why they have often been produced by small companies which have small factories. However, some larger automakers have shown interest by launching their own microcar models. As with any new form of mobility, many buzzwords are used to categorize these variations currently available on the microcar market. Generally, the distinguishing features of microcars are one, compact size and lightweight, and two, top speed limited to urban environments, putting them in a category of microcars. ID Tech X sees microcars fitting in between electric cars and electric mopeds on the mobility spectrum. Even then, there can be a lot of variation in terms of what microcars look like or is categorized by. Some other terms that may be used to describe a microcar regionally include quadricycles and neighborhood EVs. These vehicles are treated more as a low-trip cost daily short-haul commuter rather than fitting into a traditional car ownership concept. Again, very typical of a Downtown area, uh, even a small town downtown area where you can use a golf cart type situation to get around a lot easier uh, that's covered, um, uh, allows you to lock the doors and lock your stuff in there. Not that that really counts if you're in San Francisco where they just take your stuff anyway and everybody's leaving their windows down so they don't break the windows in the car because they're going to take your stuff anyway. Uh, But that's the kind of vehicle we're talking about. All right, back to the ID Tech X article. Common concerns about microcars include safety, vehicle design, and regulations. Since microcars are driven on the road along with standard cars, safety is a top concern to protect the driver. Obviously, if you're going to be taking a large vehicle, especially let's say that Ram truck, and ramming it into one of these microcars, the microcar is going to lose. There are areas for improvement, whether this involves a stronger vehicle frame, but that will add weight, and adding airbags to protect the driver from collisions, also adding weight and size, or building better suspension to keep the driver in control when going going over potholes, 
again, adding some more weight and uh, size design. Many of these microcars are considered legal motorized vehicles, but they lack the standardization and regulations that car manufacturers must adhere to. In addition, some microcars do not require a driver's license. That's pretty interesting uh, and would allow, again, a lot of people to use the cars that currently aren't really legal to drive. Many microcar manufacturers see their vehicles offering an autonomous shuttle service in the future, In order to build this solution, they are partnering with autonomous driving companies who need to find vehicles that are flexible, energy efficient, low cost, and ready to deploy quickly. Applying autonomous technologies in this way has the potential to solve nationwide issues such as transit in crowded cities, lack of transportation options, and diminishing parking spots. Honda cites Japan's aging population, declining birth rate, and the global pandemic as a few of the reasons why it sees the need for small self-driving EVs, which people can hail and even depend on for basic transportation. ID Tech X's latest report provides an in-depth an- analysis of the microcar market with opportunities for motor uh, manufacturers, battery suppliers, and fleet operators. Again, little cars like this are fine, especially in the confines of a large downtown area or even a small downtown if, if you're looking at smaller cities, right? But not necessarily on highways, on major roadways, in major metropolitan areas where you're going to be mixing a lot of uh, regular cars and these little micro cars. Uh, but but when, when they decide to close downtown areas, this might be a decent option uh, to get around these downtown areas that will be a little bit bigger than a, a smaller town where it is easy to get around in a golf cart. I mean, just think of it as, as golf carts everywhere. Uh, and there are some little towns like the villages uh, that just use golf carts everywhere. And it really is fun and easy to get around. But there's also problems with people driving golf carts and you mix them with regular cars and you could have disastrous results uh, in those areas. All right. Using a rideshare car can be more convenient than public transportation, right? But have you ever wondered about the impact of rideshare on traffic congestion and the environment and public transit or, or even your car insurance rates? Researchers who pondered these questions have often found data that goes against the narrative of ride-sharing, decreasing congestion, and being friendly to the environment. The website MotorOne.com posted an article by writer Brogan Woodburn titled The Surprising Impacts of Ride-Sharing, Environment Congestion, and Beyond. They found that ride-sharing has caused more problems than what the services solve. Joining me to talk more about this article and the findings is J.R. Ridley. He's the digital PR director for the Motor One Research Team. John, thanks for being here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, Jason. I'm excited to chat more about this. Okay, before we get into the specifics of the article, first explain what MotorOne.com is. I don't think a lot of people are familiar with the website. Yeah, so if you're a car enthusiast, you probably are uh, are familiar with Motor One. Uh, Motor One is one of the leading authorities in the automotive world on uh, pretty much everything across the the car industry here from making model reviews to new releases. My team specifically focuses on the consumer advice side of this. So Motor One Research Team digs into auto insurance and how to ship your car, how to get loans, what kind of warranties are best for your coverage. So we focus more on the the kind of aftermarket consumer side of the industry. Uh, interesting. And uh, why did Motor One decide to look into this issue of rideshare? So we started off looking at the impact of ride sharing on insurance, and that's actually where our uh, our analysis kind of stemmed from. 
I drove for Uber back in the day and almost ended up in a, a spot of hot water when I didn't know what kind of insurance coverage I needed. And so we started looking into that. And as we dug into it, we realized there are a lot of myths around ride sharing. You hinted at a, a few of them impacts on the environment, on congestion, on your insurance coverage. And we realized that a lot of the kind of narratives that end up getting touted uh, in the, the kind of mainstream uh, conversation there don't always pan out in real life. You just mentioned that you were an Uber driver uh, a while back. W when you first thought about becoming an Uber driver, what were your impressions of what it would be like? And then how did that change after you had done it for a little bit? Yeah, so I drove for Uber back when I was in college. I looked at that as a you know nice source of side income. I went to school in Nashville and would take the the late night bar crowds to and from the the bars and back to their houses. So for me, I got really got into it as a, a bit of a side gig there. And it was, you know, nice little bit of beer and pizza money when I was uh, going through school. And then what it really seems like it's morphed into now is this is a full time job for a lot of people. And I know there's a lot of drivers who put in 80, 90, you know, 100 hours a week, really trying to, to max this out. So it has definitely transformed from what was uh, in my day, kind of a, a smaller kind of side project to really a full-time hustle for a lot of people. Did, did the income ever come close to covering what you were spending on maintenance or gas or the wear and tear on your car? At that time, it did. Uh, and I will say, I'm going to give a shout out to my 2006 Honda Accord, which is still chugging now almost 200,000 miles later. So uh, fortunately, I was able to to net out ahead there. But figuring out the taxes, the insurance, the the wear and tear, the oil changes, at a certain point, even just the headache and the, the logistics of it really became too much to, to grapple with. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, my guest is J.R. Ridley, the DG, D, digital PR director for the Motor One <laughs> research team, talking about our, uh, the article titled The Surprising Impacts of Ride Sharing. Uh, is, is the first point that was made in the article is that gas vehicle ride sharing causes 69% more climate pollution compared to private car rides. How was that determined? So that was based on a report from the Union of Concerned Scientists, which was a, an academic consortium that dug into uh, a lot of ride sharing data over the last few years here. And what they found is kind of a, a bit of a counter narrative to your point. So I'm sure many of your listeners, uh, as well as myself, have heard that using ride sharing is going to cut down on pollution and emissions because you're not driving your car quite as much. But where the issue comes in most of the time is actually what are called deadhead miles. So that time period where you're a driver who is driving to a pickup spot or you just finished a drop off and you're heading to the airport or to, to pick up your next passenger all of those down miles where you're not actually having a passenger in the car really add up. And that, as far as we could tell, was the biggest contributor to this emission increase, which was really surprising. Yeah. And, and, and you cited uh, the guy, Don uh, Anair, who was a research director uh, there for the Clean Transportation Program. Did you look for anybody on the other side of the issue? Because he's more left leaning. Did you have anybody look on the right leaning side of this issue? Uh, not to my knowledge, uh, and I can 
definitely check with Brogan and uh, and see if that did come up in his research, but not to my knowledge, no. Uh, is the factor of multiple ride-sharing cars waiting around just to pick up a few passengers? You, you must have known that from your time as a mm-hmm. ride-share where you might have 10 ride-share people sitting in their car idling, just kind of hanging around waiting for that one or two or three passengers that all of a sudden ding your phone, right? Yeah, there's a lot of that down period, especially when you're picking people up from concerts or other big events. There's obviously a waiting period as everyone kind of lets out. Or if you're trying to schedule a pickup from the airport, there's a lot of downtime that really gets built into the the travel there. Yeah, but that is is that what you think contributes to the um, uh, the con- the pollution aspect of the study that was uh, that was written about? Oh, yes, 100%. That idle time is really, really detrimental for the environment and for all of the uh, the emissions uh, information that we could find. So what I will say, the, the other side of this and what does seem like it could have more of a positive impact on the emissions is a shift to more EV-focused ride-sharing, because to your point, that idling, sitting there with your engine running and the, the gas kind of burning is really the the detrimental part of that. So what we did find though is EV uh, based rideshare can actually have a positive impact on emissions and on the environment. And I know Uber and Lyft and some of the the other companies are really pushing some of these programs forward, offering incentives to their drivers, really trying to promote more EV vehicles as part of their fleet. Um, so that is a very kind of positive indicator as we're looking toward the future that this may not be the norm, you know, indefinitely. It may just be kind of the reality of the time now. Yeah, I think it's Uber that was actually allowing for drivers to rent through Uber a Tesla or other electric vehicles that you could then use as your rideshare car uh, to do just exactly what you said. Exactly. And I know they have a, a program you can get slightly more money per trip if you're offering trips in electric vehicles and they've made a pledge i believe by 2030 in the u.s canada and europe to have their fleet entirely electrified and around the world by 2040 so definitely some positive steps especially on the part of uber to to really try and correct for this my guest is jr ridley is a digital pr director for the motor one research team we're talking about their article titled the surprising impacts of ride sharing now in the article it says that ride sharing displaces other modes of transportation like buses and trains. Uh, But most times those other forms of transportation are not as convenient as jumping in a rideshare and going from where you are now to the exact place that you want to be where you don't have to worry about that first mile, last mile problem, or even if it's just the first hundred yards in the last hundred yards problem, right? Why walk when I could catch a ride? Exactly. And I'll even give you a personal example. I live in Washington, D.C. We have a metro system. We have a a pretty robust public transport system. For me, it is still infinitely more convenient to schedule a Lyft or schedule an Uber and have that take me directly to the airport rather than walking to a metro stop, navigating which line I need to be on, what transfer station I have to get off at. So I've had times where a, a trip for me from my house to the airport, for example, can take half the time in a, an Uber as it would taking the metro. Yeah, that's a good point that it will take less time because you know you're just going to go from point A to point B and you don't have to do all those other other things. Uh, so so is it really, is it is it a problem that rideshare is displacing other modes of transportation when they are not as convenient 
uh, to where and how you want to get around? So the sad reality is, yes, it is. Um, and the biggest issue we're seeing is urban congestion. And this is one of the other myths that I didn't expect to uh, necessarily see refuted, but really came up in our research here. Um, the narrative I've always heard is if you're taking ride sharing, if you're keeping your vehicle off the road, we're keeping congestion down. It's fewer cars out on the road. It's going to help with traffic and transit times and all that kind of stuff. But to your point, when that's also displacing public transportation or when those rides are being centralized in an urban center around rush hour time, end of the workday, beginning of the workday, what the studies have shown is that actually increases congestion rather than decreasing it. So is this also going back to the other point about uh, emissions? Is it just that there are 10 ride shares waiting around or maybe driving around looking for the one or two or three passengers that need a ride at that moment? It does seem like that's a, a big part of it. And again, to, to give a little bit more of a positive spin here, there are some indicators of ways that uh, cities can take some action that will actually address this. So one of the most prominent examples was uh, Chicago, who implemented a downtown zone surcharge is what they called it during uh, kind of the, the prime rush hour periods. And what that did was add a slightly higher fee to ride sharing pickups if you were getting a, a pickup during that busy time of rush hour, unless you were taking a pooled service. So if you were taking Uber Pool or any of the other shared transit services that uh, these companies offer, that would also kind of cut down on that uh, surcharge and pooling the rides actually did help with congestion. So it really does seem like the issue is when you're that solo rider who's getting picked up in a single car, that's where a lot of those issues really manifest. Yeah, but the uh, passengers, because I had traveled to Chicago last summer and I was using rideshare with my family and we had to pay that tax and it didn't seem like it disincentivized because whatever you tax, you're supposed to get less of whatever you incentivize, you're supposed to get more of. But that tax did not seem to lower the number of rideshares that were available when I needed them. Yeah. And I think what we found is it did actually decrease the trips by a small percentage. I think it was a drop of about 7% of a, uh, a decrease on all trips. And more importantly, it did increase those pooled trips. So for you traveling with your family, probably not going to be able to, to take as much uh, benefit or take as much use of that. For myself, for example, if I was a solo traveler in the city and was able to pool with two or three other people heading to the airport or heading, you know, to, uh, to similar destinations, those types of rides actually did increase by about 16%. So there is a, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel to your point. It's far from the perfect system though. Yeah. And then that money, w w which is, is collected by the city of Chicago. I mean, did it go to infrastructure? Where did, where did that money go that they collected from all the people that were supposed to be paying into this system? That's a, a great question. I don't have that info. Happy to uh, to follow up and see if we can find that. But I don't think we uh, we dug quite that far. Yeah, and you can't mention the the, the pooled uh, uh, service where you can uh, ride. If let, let's say the the Uber is going to drive by you, you can jump in, and then the other person jumps out. It's almost like a uh, a pseudo bus, if you will. That's a a, a ride share bus kind of uh, that everybody's sharing, depending on on the eventual points you're going. Uh, but that, again, is it doesn't seem like as, as convenient. If, if you're back in your days where you're driving the Uber, it, is, it doesn't seem like that would be as, as convenient as, as just going from point A to point B and then going having some other rideshare picking up that other person that needs to go. 
Yeah, definitely not as convenient on the the rider or the driver's side. So um, I know I've heard a number of complaints from drivers in my time about uh, having to drive to these multiple pickup points and drop off points and kind of navigate where people are going. If you have a change to your destination or anything like that, it can throw off the whole system. And as a rider, I'm not always sure who I'm getting in the car with. You don't know if they took a shower after the gym that morning, you know, whatever the case may be. So it's definitely not a, a perfect system there to your point, public transportation to whatever extent possible does seem to, to help there. Um, but yeah, definitely urban congestion is one of those points that uh, seems like it's going to take a, a concerted effort from cities, from drivers and from riders to there, tackle. There are still plenty of interesting smells on any kind of public transportation. <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter which city you're in. Uh, J.R. Ridley is my guest, digital PR director for the Motor One research team. We're talking about their article titled The Surprising Impacts of Ride Sharing. You can get it uh, from the link that's in the description of this show. Uh, uh, the article also points out that there are unique circumstances around how car insurance works with, and you mentioned this earlier with your experience being a, a, an Uber driver and how the insurance coverage works. And there are some gaps in that system. There are. So my experience from you know 10 years or so ago um, was before a lot of this really got fleshed out a little more fully. The issue that uh, a lot of drivers run into now is Uber and Lyft and all the transit services will provide basic liability coverage when you have a passenger in the car. Your personal coverage will cover you when you're not on the clock and you're not uh, picking up or, or dropping off a rider. Where you end up running into a kind of gap in coverage, though, is when you have a rider scheduled for pickup, like you are logged into the app, but you don't have a rider in the car. That's actually where neither your personal nor your uh, Uber and Lyft provided coverage is actually set to cover you. And that's where a lot of those issues can come in for drivers. Is that why maybe some drivers choose to drop off in one spot and then just sit and wait for the next ride, and then they can then clock in and, and head to the next destination? It wouldn't surprise me. Um, it Even in that case, though, still wouldn't always solve for the problem because that after you're done waiting and you actually have your pickup spot, you're still running that risk of any kind of accident that you incur there. There are uh, add-ons that you can usually get from your personal insurance coverage, uh, an additional ride-sharing certificate that should cover you during that time period. But if you don't know about that and you get into an accident before you've secured that uh, that additional coverage, you could be in for a world of hurt. Yeah, and, and I'm sure that would be almost like having uninsured uh, coverage, and and you might have to rely on on somebody else's uninsured coverage to cover what what those costs would be. I would imagine. I would assume so, and definitely. Not something that I'm looking to uh, to get involved in suing my insurance company for. So right, what what are the costs? Uh, the costs for all of this insurance coverage uh, has to be a lot higher when you are one of these drivers, and and you would think that that cost is then passed on to me, the person getting in the car and riding around. I would guess so. I don't have the the stats there. I know that certificate uh, often is, I believe, maybe thirty bucks a, a month on average for your. Um, for your additional coverage there. So don't have the specific stats on that, but to your point, you have to assume the costs are going to add up and kind of come back to the riders in some form. And, and it probably this gap in coverage and higher coverage uh, and, and odd coverage really collectively means that we are all paying more for our insurance, no matter if you're a rideshare driver or not. 
Exactly. And that's some of the other uh, data that our team has dug into, not just for ride sharing, but in general, looking at the rising cost of insurance and uh, some of the the new trends that we're seeing post-COVID with different companies who are trying to increase their rates. So it's definitely something to be cognizant of as a consumer. A, a short, small part uh, of the story uh, talks about how fewer people are owning cars because of rideshare. I, I never re- heard about this phenomenon before rideshare where uh, somebody would uh, just maybe except for maybe New York City where where transit is everywhere and it's everybody wants to ride the subway for some <laughs> for some reason uh, but that fewer people are actually owning uh, owning cars because they have the access to rideshare yeah and I think we're seeing this primarily in kind of the bigger urban metropolitan area as I mentioned earlier on the call I live in DC I have a few friends that are perfectly capable of getting around the city here without uh, a vehicle whether that's through public transit or ride sharing I have a, a couple of friends from San Francisco and New York who have done that so ride sharing definitely adds to the the ability in these kind of more, clustered cities to to be able to manage that and i think if that's something that you're comfortable with and you're not always a fan of public transportation it just really adds fuel to that fire and even more so just the outskirts of a downtown area not necessarily the suburbs where you're where you're going out 20 miles but that that distance maybe between five and ten miles of a city center where the transit might not be as robust as it is in the city center, uh, but you still have all the ride share ability to get from your point to point and, uh, and, and do it conveniently. Exactly. So for me, for example, DC borders, Virginia and Maryland, there's a lot of the cities on either side of the, the city boundaries there that um, are definitely far more accessible with Uber and Lyft, whether that's Arlington or Bethesda or any of these cities kind of in between. My guest is J.R. Ridley. He's the digital PR director for the Motor One research team. We're looking at their article titled The Surprising Impacts of Ride Sharing. What do you think transportation in these big cities will look like in the downtown core? Will it be devoid of all cars except for ride share? Will it be only people walking and biking and using transit? What do you think it'll look like in the next 10 or 20 or 40 years? It's a great question. I think what we're likely to see more of uh, is actually autonomous uh, ride-sharing systems. I know this is something Uber's invested in, uh, and I know has started to have a couple of pilot programs around the country. I think if I'm looking ahead at the future of ride-sharing, and especially in these uh, kind of tighter cities, I'm really intrigued by what autonomous driving is going to add to that and if that has any impact on the number of drivers, the number of cars on the road, those deadhead miles we were talking about. There's a lot of really fascinating implications there. Is there room for robo-taxis and human drivers all at the same time? (laughs) Didn't that seem like it's uh, oil and water mixing together on these roads? You know, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, I have heard some of the horror stories about, uh, you know, the cases where the autonomous technology goes wrong. Um, I certainly hope the technology continues to improve and we we continue to see more of that. To your point, though, I really don't know if there's a, a world where the human and autonomous driving can mix or if that needs to be kind of a, an all-in-one shift. And do you think these robo-taxis, if they become more robust, if you see more of them, do you think that would start to maybe replace 
some of the current transit that we see now? Why run so many local buses when you have the robo-taxis that can basically do the same service, and then you just run more a regional service from, like in your spot, uh, from you know one town to the main city center there in, in Washington, D.C. or Baltimore or wherever? I think definitely, and especially going back to some of the points we had before about insurance and how you kind of have to navigate the the gaps in coverage and all of that kind of stuff. Taking the driver out of the equation really simplifies some of the the calculus there. There's obviously the ability for some of these companies to really enhance their fleets with EV vehicles and have their own you know dedicated charging areas. So I think there's a lot that really can be done with the the robo taxi, as you're saying, the autonomous driving. Uh, and I would be shocked if in the next you know ten to twenty years that didn't become a much more core part of the infrastructure. Yeah, and and finally, I, I know that you uh, serve some of your time uh, outside of work uh, as a soccer referee. So uh, when you do that, can you can you really tell when somebody's faking it if they hurt their ankle? I will say this. The boys that I ref are very, very obvious. The girls can be much more devious and much uh, sneakier about hiding it. So, yes, yes, you can. And and I'll bet it drives you crazy when you're watching the World Cup or some other soccer event. (laughs) Going in pain that they just lost it. And then they're up running again in the next two or three minutes. You know, the slow motion replays are cringe inducing sometimes for those games. (laughs) That's right. My (laughs) guest has been J.R. Ridley. He's the digital PR director for the Motor One research team. Look at their article that you can find in the description of the show called The Surprising Impacts of Ride Sharing. John, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jason. Have a great one. All right. If you want to read more about this, then you can uh, just go to that link in the description of the show. And I have it all right there for you. I I think if this TV thing that I'm doing right now and the podcast thing that I'm doing right now flames out, because, you know, at any any moment in in the broadcast industry, that could be your last day. You just you just kind of never know. I mean, you're 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 working at the at the pleasure of the uh, of the whims of the people. Um, I think I'm going to go be a UPS driver. I I think I would look pretty good in brown. You see, you get some exercise get to lift uh, lift with the back, but you get to run around from building to truck and truck to building and lift some packages. So you're getting exercise throughout the day. You get fresh air. Uh, yeah, there's cold days and hot days. You get to listen to some sweet tunes in the truck. Um, <laughs> there's better pay now after the whole negotiation with the union and all. Um, it, just about everybody is happy to see you when you show up with their Amazon package. Or any kind of package, right? Who doesn't like a uh, visit from the UPS guy or or gal uh, when they're delivering you a package? Because you just you just got a package. Everybody's happy to see you, right? Uh, anyway, it's, it's it's always good to have options. Uh, <laughs> thanks again for being here. If you have comments or questions or concerns, of course you can reach me on any of the contact links in the description of the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Looper, the Traffic Guy. Be safe and as always, happy motoring.